This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. We are back. It is another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I am one of your hosts, Bill Real. I'm Britt Hartley. And we're excited to be with you today. Britt, this is a weird thing that we have to kind of be... Uh, a jack of all trades, right? And talk about a lot of different things, but not really be the expert in any of them. Uh, and I think that'll be somewhat true for today's topic. Uh, I was listening to a uh, book on Audible and it had a chapter that was talking about attachment theory. And I found the theory, I've heard it before, a little pieces and parts, but thought about it uh, again as I was listening and thought, you know, that'd be a, a really interesting discussion for this podcast. And uh suggested it to you. And we've been spending the last week or so here preparing, talking about attachment styles and what attachment theory is. And uh, before we get started, how, how's things going and how's life treating you? I'm doing well. Um, I do have to, last time I congratulated you for becoming a grandpa and it looks like I'm due for another congratulations. Did it again. Let's <laughs> see did, if we can go like 52 it. weeks in a row. We're just going to try for 52 <laughs> of them. But yes, so we've congratulations had again in, yeah. since I've talked to you. <laughs> two grandkids born five days apart from uh, obviously different mothers and uh, uh, my daughter-in-law and my uh, oldest daughter. Uh, both had kids. And so I am, I went from being a grandpa of one to being a grandpa of three in less than a week. Yeah. Big week so for your family. Exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, I don't yeah. have anything so exciting on my end. So <laughs> nothing We're going just, on, on your end, huh? Not, not as big as, you know, becoming a, a you know, a grandparents again. So just plugging yeah. away over here, but I am excited for this episode. We, you know, really started to dig into it and then it got really exciting the more we kept digging. And so mm. we're not, you know, we probably should put out there a disclaimer that we're not therapists. This isn't the work that we do, mm -hmm. but it is a part of human nature and understanding why our brains work the way that they do. And it's going to be a part, as we'll explain later, it's going to be a part of really un understanding our basic levels of needs so that we can move towards self-actualization. And it's, uh, it got more exciting the more we got into it. So I'm really excited for this episode. Love it. I don't think you really knew where we were going to go when I first suggested mm -hmm. the idea. And, and then I think you put a lot of prep in this week. I could see by some of the things you were sharing, some of the things you were adding to the outline. So let's start off with what is attachment theory. And if I can maybe turn some time over to you, for some of this history behind uh, where this came about. Yeah. So the first thing that I have to do in my like history teacher brain is understand. Um, yeah. Just kind of the history of how this came about that just get, that helps me understand things. So there's kind of two parts to how this attachment theory rolled out. So the first part is the work of John Bowlby and this is in um, the 1930s, right? So 
1930s, 40s, 50s. So he's in London. He's an English gentleman. He's working as a psychiatrist with children, and he's especially working with emotionally disturbed children. And what he does is he examines 44 delinquent children. They have history of stealing. You know, they're, they're delinquent teens. In this case, they were boys. So no tests on girls in this early phase. And he, he kind of pieced together that one of the main things that, you know, why are these children doing this? One of the main things that uh, connected these children as to why they were being delinquent is that they had a history of early and longed and prolonged separation. So again, this is wartime. This is World War II time. So mm. these boys had a gap of um, in their bonding experience very, very early on before memory. So he's trying to understand this, right? There's no understanding on why um, that would be. So he continues to study this phenomena with children in orf orphanages and hospitals that had interruptions with bonding due to World War II. And he starts to piece together that attachment is um, something that we need that enhances an infant's chance of survival. And so, you know, children come into this world, we're biologically pre-programmed to form attachments with others because this is going to help us survive. We're, we're not giraffes. Like we don't just plop out and start, start running. Like we're very vulnerable and our brains are attuned to attach to the first character giver that we come across. So the next piece is that um, in the 70s, Mary Ainsworth and her colleagues takes this, you know, this beginning work and really digs into it. And they start doing tests with mothers and infants. And I was telling Bill before we popped on that because I'm uh, so interested in all these studies, I wish my children were one or under one so that I could do the study and see how they react. But they basically put infants in a room in an unfamiliar environment, but with the mother and they were free to explore. And then a stranger enters, enters the room and approaches the infant. And then the mother leaves the room. And then you see what the baby does. And so they determined that there were three kinds of responses, a secure response, an anxious response, an avoidant response. And then we come up with a fourth, fourth one, which is disordered, which is anxious and avoidant. And so you could see by the age of one, how the infant reacted to the mom leaving and the stranger um, how their attachment style was going in their brain um, before they were even one years old. And then, you know, that that develops over time. But that gives you a glimpse into where this kind of theory comes from. And it's really working with young, young, young children and um, trying to figure out how our brains are formed with those early attachments. Love it. I wanted to put up here on the screen just a little a little thing for folks to kind of take a look at. Uh, I read a book, uh, again, I mentioned on this podcast before, it was What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And uh, Bruce Perry's book about what happened to you, which is co-authored by Oprah, Bruce is the scientist behind the book. And uh, he had done a lot of studying of uh, children and trauma. And he makes it crystal clear in the book that the earlier ages, the earlier time in a child's life are much more monumental than later. In other words, like the first three months can go great. And that is worth more than say the next two years or the first year can go great. And that's worth more than the next seven years. 
like the earlier in a, a child's life that they are growing up and interacting and learning how the world works, that's the time that's the most sensitive, the further back you go. And uh, stages of attachment here in the early time, pre-attachment, birth to six weeks, baby shows no particular attachment to a specific caregiver. The the child that was just born, grandbaby was just born. Uh, so far, every time she's been over, it's she just sleeps. That's all she does. Uh, she wakes up to get you know a diaper change, eat something, go back to sleep. There's not a lot of interaction. Six weeks to seven months, infant begins to show preference for primary and secondary caregivers. Uh, seven plus months, infant shows strong attachment to one specific caregiver, multiple 10 plus months, growing bonds with other caregivers. We've got a grandchild at two and a half, and I can testify of that. And once that kid got to about a little under a year old, he started to really attach to us as grandparents, and it's just kind of grown and grown since then. Um, let me pull that back off the screen. And as you pointed out, this is all tied into survival. Human beings are pretty weak on their own, right? Like if a human being had to survive in the jungle all by themselves, they just probably wouldn't last long. What, what gives us the um, advantage um, but she had mentioned this idea of survival and humans really do need uh, to be in groups to survive. It's what gives us our uh, advantage out there. And um, you can see this play out that, that humans really need these, these social interactions, these, uh, these sort of friendship uh, uh, ways in which of interacting with the world, whether it be parents who uh, help folks survive but you can see like through the book Sapiens with Yuval Harari, uh, you can see how humans uh, have got to have these social connections. Humans do need to be in groups to survive. Humans really do have to make these social connections. The book Sapiens, for instance, talks about how important that is to humans. Um, when I think about these attachment styles, it really is what kind of parenting you have. And we'll get into some of these other uh, styles and see kind of where each one of these goes. But as little children, we are looking for somebody to take care of us and to provide for our needs. You mentioned the hierarchy of needs in the beginning. We all need uh, food and shelter. We all need emotional uh, connection. We need love and support. We need acceptance. We need uh, encouragement to, to go out and be our best selves. And it really ups up to that primary caregiver, whoever that is, usually parents, but some situations it's not, to provide for those needs. And when those needs are provided for adequately, then uh, that child will develop generally a secure uh, attachment uh, to primary caregivers. And then as they grow older to secondary caregivers and to other relationships they develop boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, you know, aunts, uncles, they will have a healthy way of interacting in a relationship. When those needs are not met adequately, in lots of different ways they, they can't be or, or, or are unable to be, then what happens is that generally these children will develop some sort of other attachment uh, besides secure attachment, and it will have some dysfunction to it. Um, and none of these styles are perfect. There's even some blind spots in secure attachment, which we'll mention when we get to that. But the way in which you form your uh, 
attachment mechanisms to your primary caregiver will go through with you into additional relationships later in your life and can show up as severe dysfunction throughout your life. And there are ways to sort of head towards getting back on track. But these are things that, and, and as I went through all of this prep for this, I could see some of this in people I deeply care about, including myself. And any thoughts um, from you on how attachment theory works or um, any other concepts along those lines before we jump into each of these attachments and how what, what kind of characteristics we tend to find and what kind of parenting leads to them? Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Um, so first, before we really dig in, I just love this idea that um, our, our brains form around that first attachment. So as an infant, we have 20,000 new neural connections every day as an infant versus about 5,000 as adult. We're hardwired to attach to a caregiver at first opportunity. And the interesting thing about that study that I mentioned with babies is that um, the anxious and the avoidant, this doesn't mean that you're messed up for life. It's a coping mechanism that you learn at an early age. And just like we all do in therapy, we find better coping mechanisms than the one that we've kind of inherited um, so that we can be more stable humans. And so they did, they tested later on when we could actually dig into the hormones of this, they, they still do this study because it just takes a few minutes and, you know, it's not too damaging to the baby for the mom to walk out for a moment, but they'll test the hormones of the babies and the anxious baby who's crying, right? Because they're anxious that mom is left and the avoidant baby who's not crying, but not paying attention to mom. Um, they both had the same amount of cortisol, like a stress hormone. And so either one, they're very stressed as babies. It didn't matter if they were anxious or avoidant, even though one was crying and one is not. Um, but they're learning at that early age uh, a coping mechanism for the bonding that they're not getting. And so, again, learning attachment styles isn't something that we weaponize against other people like, Oh, he's an anxious avoidant, whatever. Um, it's not something that we use to weaponize other people. It's just a, a way of understanding ourselves so that we, if this is a place where we have, um, uh, coping mechanisms that aren't serving us that we can get better coping mechanisms so we can continue to grow. We all have to parent ourselves in ways that we weren't parented. And this is just one of those pieces. Yeah. Uh, I wrote down here, how do we process and regulate our emotions as they are involved in our attached relationship? So as we form this relationship with our primary caregiver as a newborn infant and, and then um, grow up, uh, when things aren't taken care of, we seek out to have those needs filled. And the way in which our parents don't show up will deeply affect the mechanisms we developed through to, to get those needs met or to avoid unhealthy things happening. Uh, and again, we'll carry those with us. Um, I also put down here, if your caregivers are supportive, meet your needs and offer you a positive emotional connection, you likely ended up with secure attachment style. That's about 66% of the population is what uh, they said the science says on that. 
But when that upbringing was significantly less than ideal, many end up with something else. When a child's caregivers don't show up in healthy ways, a child will adapt their behavior in ways that seek out care or avoid unhealthy interactions. For instance, a child may act out in order to get attention because negative attention is better than no attention uh, for some um, because the parents were always preoccupied. For others, their caregiver may be physically or verbally or emotionally abusive, and hence they develop avoidant behaviors. So they develop more of a detachment approach. The style we create to navigate attachment in relationships depends on what worked in our developmental years, and it carries with us throughout our life and affects all of our relationships, especially the people we are attached to most. And so as a 43-year-old man, I can see... uh, factors that play out in my attachment style, my wife's attachment style. I can see how my parents affected mine. I can see how I affected my children. And now on this end of life, I really want to help my kids have all the tools uh, to be able to help their kids, my grandchildren, to develop a healthy, secure attachment. Um, and and so I even sent some things on to, to all my kids this morning about this stuff because I thought it was so interesting. Um we're going to jump into the first one. Anything else before we do? I just want to add one more one more study um, that shows how much we need this was the gorilla study. I don't know if you were bringing this up later, but um, because we can do more, exper- more experiments with gorilla babies ethically than we can with human babies, you know, we've all seen, I think, the study where uh, the gorilla babies have a wire mother that has milk and then like a soft, mm. warm, cuddly mother. And they'll Mm -hmm. sometimes go like to get fed, but then they'll go like they'll prefer the cuddly warm mother over the one with food. Right. And so we just didn't know for the longest time that, um, you know, we figure, you know, you're fed, you're taken care of, you got a roof over your head, you're fine. And then, you know, these studies really show even in chimps, you know, even in our ape relatives that those babies need the warm fuzzy mother more than they need the milk and so it was just like this whoa we've totally misunderstood um you know how much we need that early bonding i'll tell you when i i saw that experiment in college when i took my psychology classes in the realm of education um and what struck me as i was preparing for this i didn't know you were going to mention that but i was thinking about that test as I was preparing for this conversation. And it struck me that we do these experiments with animals, right? We take these chimps and we, we essentially sabotage their life and try to find out what we can learn about humans by doing things to them. And I was actually a little sad this morning thinking about how we screw up the attachment style of the chimpanzees by putting them in these prolonged experiments and withholding a secure attachment relationship from them and offering them a, a wired mother, a, a wired metal, cold, hard uh, mother who simply feeds them, and then a, a warm, soft mother who doesn't actually give them any interaction. Yeah, they may not really have. Sad. They may not have good gorilla sex when they got older. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> no, there's an there's an adult chimpanzee out there right now with with avoidant, uh, anxious avoidant attachment because of this experiment. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, Let's jump into, so the first one uh, that they list in most of these is the anxious. Uh, I'll share a few things here, and then um, I want to get your thoughts. 
uh, here's what I've got on anxious, uh, referred to sometimes as anxious ambivalent attachment. Uh, generally, it, it happens when uh, someone is um, exposed to misattuned and inconsistent parenting. Uh, they tend to have low self-esteem, strong fear of rejection or abandonment. And clinginess in relationships are common signs of this attachment style. Again, do generally do an inconsistent parenting pat, uh, plat, or, uh, pattern. Sorry, inconsistent responsiveness to a child's emotional needs, misattunement, mis sorry, misattunement and emotional distance, as well as preoccupation with and intrusiveness in the child's life, are some of the risk factors. As adults, these children may think highly of others, but often suffer from low self-esteem themselves. They are uh, sensitive and attuned to their partner's needs, but are often insecure and anxious about their own worth in a relationship. They might blame themselves or label themselves as not being worthy of love. They need constant reassurance that they are loved, that they are worthy, that they are good enough. Uh, intensely jealous or suspicious of their partners. This fear might also lead them to become desperate, clingy, preoccupied with their relationships. Adults with anxious attachment style are often afraid or even incapable of being alone. They seek intimacy and closeness and are highly emotional and dependent on others. The presence of a loved one appears to be uh, the remedy for their strong emotional needs. Uh, it only takes a little setback or a small negative experience, and they deem that their life is falling apart, that the sky is falling. These are folks who are who deeply feel like they are not worthy of the relationships that they are in. And the moment things start to look like they might unravel, these people tend to go to the worst fear, like the worst thing that could possibly happen is surely going to happen here. Things are going to fall apart. And what struck me as I as I read up on the um, anxious or anxious ambivalent attachment uh, is that these folks run the risk of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and sabotaging their own relationships by being scared that they're falling apart, adding extra tension to a relationship that would have been fine otherwise. Any thoughts from you on this first one? Yeah, this one's really interesting. So the anxious attachment would be the baby that cried, right? Um, and they become really needy. And it's, this, it's really this black hole of need to try to fill in that gap of, of um, deep fear that the parent or the caregiver is going to not be able to meet their needs. And I think what really strikes me when I look at this is how many people, you know, before we had words for this, before we had studies about this, how many people were trying to work on their self-esteem and trying to work on their jealousy and relationships and trying to, you know, do mantras to tell themselves I'm worthy and I'm enough. And it's all, you know, they're trying at this level to, to get at it, but not knowing that the root of it is, oh, I have an anxious attachment style. It was based on my things that I don't even remember before um, before I was old enough to have memories because my mom was depressed at the time and we, I didn't form a good attachment. And here are the tools that can help me when I have, um, anxious thoughts about my relationship. 
And it just, it makes me sad that, you know, before we had words about these things, any effort that you did to try to fill in your self-esteem and your security would never really get to the root of this because we didn't understand that this was the root of your poor self-esteem, you know, and that just, that makes me sad. We've only had words for this very recently. Yeah, these, these aren't deeply dysfunctional parents. These are parents who are inconsistent um, the, that lead to this attachment style being developed by the child. So the parents sometimes show up meeting the needs and sometimes they don't and it's sort of hit or miss. And so the kid can't figure out what leads to success and what doesn't. So everything is kind of guesswork. And so now they get into these later relationships and they're left with some degree of guesswork in their own head. Um, it, it, again, it, it, these all tend to play out that whatever your parents showed up as you're going to sort of form your attachment style based on that. And then now you carry that same dysfunction, perpetuating it to the next generation. Yeah. It's interesting because often this type will seek out an avoidant, which we'll talk about later. Um, so anxious and avoidant people will often find each other in relationship and um, which yeah. is just like, why, why? My you know? wife's an anxious and I'm an avoidant. Yeah. They, we find like they find each other and it's because the anxious one, you can't, if you have two anxious people, like they're just two black holes, right. Of need that it just doesn't really work. But the avoidant can sit with the anxiety of, of the other person until the anxious person becomes so much that the avoidant person eventually steps away. Um, but it's so interesting because I feel like in the fifties, especially um, there was kind of this movement that, you know, don't breastfeed, you can do formula, don't, don't be too clingy with your babies, or else they'll become too dependent, they may even turn out to be homosexual, right, we had all these uh, messages about like, don't spoil the baby, like, don't sleep near the baby, don't make them too dependent on you, or else they'll become just needy, whiny, live at home forever kind of uh, adult. And then the science comes out, and we go, oh, I guess it's the opposite, and I love this analogy of um, a mom taking a kid to the playground. And so if the kid has a secure attachment, then they see mom and they're with mom at the park and maybe they'll go to the sandbox or they'll go play with the kid because they can see mom. They can check in with her. If they get a boo-boo, they know that they can go to mom and they are actually more independent if they have a secure attachment. But the kid who has an anxious attachment is sitting right next to mom can't leave because if I go down and play in the sandbox, mom might not be there when, if I get a boo-boo, so I'm just going to stay on her leg. And so it's really like opposite of what some of our parents and grandparents were taught, which was to not spoil the baby, especially this weird, you know, this weird teaching that that's like, that it, it was in like the book of, uh, medical diagnosis that off, you know, homosexuality may be caused by overspoiling by the mother. And so we just had, they just, <laughs> some of it wasn't their fault. I feel like they got out a lot of bad parenting advice about trying to detach so that the kid isn't too needy when really it needed to be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. As you're pointing out, like the kid who clings to mother's leg, the kid doesn't know when mom will be around to take care of needs and when mom will disappear. Um, and so there's just this fear of like, when are things going to go south? When is thing, when is it going to go wrong? When stuff going to turn upside down? 
Um, I put here how to move this style to secure. The attention, care, and responsiveness of the partner appears to be the remedy for anxiety. On the other hand, the absence of support and intimacy can lead the anxious, preoccupied type to become more clinging and demanding, preoccupied with the relationship and desperate for love. Um, anything else before we move on to the next one? Yeah, I think I think the big tool is always, uh, it, this is something that we do in mindfulness all the time, right? So if you're in a relationship and your partner gets a text message, if you're an anxious, if you have an anxious attachment style history, your brain is automatically going to think, my, my partner is cheating on me, right? That's going to be the first thought. Yeah. And that thought isn't your fault, right? That is just a pattern that your brain learned. And so it's another piece to just saying, oh, which is what we do in mindfulness and any kind of meditation. Oh, I had a thought. This thought comes from my anxiety around relationships. I have no, you can tell yourself, you know, I have no reason to think that my partner is cheating. I'm, I'm, this is a good relationship. I don't need to pick up that phone and go, you know, spiral about this text message. And so it really just knowing why you're doing what you're doing really just decreases the judgment and the self-judgment and the spiraling so that you can work with that first thought, even if that first thought continues to come up in relationships. Yeah. That's all I have. The, yeah, the next one here is avoidant, also referred to as dismissive. So here's what I've got. Parents who are strict. Now this would describe me, by the way, this was my parenting style is my parenting style would would and did lead to children having the avoidant attachment uh, uh, profile, right? So parents who are strict and emotionally distant do not tolerate the expression of feelings and expect their child to be independent and tough might raise children with an avoidant attachment style. Uh, as adults, these children appear confident and self-sufficient. They do not tolerate emotional or physical intimacy and might not be able to build healthy relationships. They tend to be kind of the lone wolf, uh, independent as an employee. The caregivers do not necessarily neglect their child in general. They are present, but they just show up in such a way um, that they, they won't make space for feelings. They essentially will expect too much, expect their kids to be tough. Um, these kids will avoid displays of affection, emotion, uh, intimacy, and are often, um, and then the parents will be misattuned to the child's emotional needs. So it, it kind of gets passed on, right? So the parents show up often avoiding displays of affection, emotion, and intimacy. And then these kids end up becoming adults who avoid displays of affection, emotion, and, uh, and intimacy. The caregivers are distant or reserved. The caregiver backs off when the child reaches out for connection. The caregivers are likely to become more distant as the situation gets more uh, emotional. So as more emotion is required by the parents, they'll tend to step further away. And so the kids never really get that emotional connection they're looking for. Um, they might become overwhelmed and want to get out. They are the top of the caregivers. The caregivers are most distant when the child needs them most. Uh, they often tell the children to toughen up. Uh, parents expect the child to behave very serious, very reserved. That's, that's the expectation the parents have of the child. And then it says children that uh, grow up to be an adult, 
they seem to be pretty happy about who they are and where they are. They're very social, easygoing, fun to be around. I've got a cousin who there's no ifs, ands, or buts. He is avoidant. Um, and again, we're not using this to label people, but we are because we're, we're sitting here having this conversation. I've got a cousin who is this, I, I can just tell you, this is the attachment approach he developed. And as I look at how he lives out his life, he is, he does seem happy and he does seem social and he's fun to be around and he's a jokester at parties. Um, he does have lots, says here, lots of friends. He does, uh, says that they'll tend to have no problem having lots of sexual partners. They're generally not alone or lonely. They're independent. Their self-esteem is high. They seem to be in control. Those all sound like good things, but here's what happens. Social bonds are surface level. They don't let anybody in. They believe that they do not need emotional intimacy in their lives. As soon as it gets serious, they close themselves off. Uh, Any thoughts here about the avoidant uh, attachment style? Oh, Bill, a lot of thoughts here because so I'm listening to all this kind of in an abstract way when we're kind of preparing for this and then avoidant comes up and avoidant is how my mom was parented and also how she parented me. She's she's avoidant. I think she still is. Um, And all of a sudden it was like, oh, shit, (laughs) it's me. It's my issues. Here we go. And like up until avoidant, I was like, oh, what a fun abstract principle. And then it was like, okay, it, it became real. And so this <laughs> one was this one was so interesting because you know, I just wish I could have understood this sooner. So my my mother, um, we have a positive relationship now. She she lives really close to me. Incredible grandmother. She was a stay-at-home mom, and I'm the oldest child. So as far as security, like she was there, she wasn't at work. She wasn't, you know, doing anything else, but there was something about the missing of emotion that I couldn't put words to. And I, the first time I kind of had a thought that something may be amiss is that I remember being in middle school and my girlfriends kind of saying, my mom is my best friend. And I had this thought, like, your mom is your best friend? Like, what? (laughs) Like, that's crazy. And I just, I somehow intuited that everyone else seems to have a different relationship with their mom than the relationship I had with my mom. And so even though Mm. she was there, I was always fed. I was well taken care of, well loved. There was a missing emotional piece. My mom withdraws when there's emotion and she it comes from a family where it wasn't safe to be vulnerable. They all withdraw with emotion. And so uh, it's definitely something that, you know, we talk about us, you know, us four kids uh, because it showed up in our relationships in different ways. And the interesting thing, and this happened to my brother, who also I think has avoidant as well, is that it's not usually the the avoidant attachment person who goes to therapy because they think that they're fine. I don't need to be in a relationship. Independence is like my mom's core value, right? They really want to be independent. They really don't want to be dependent on other people. My mom asking for help is really difficult, right? So it's not them who goes to therapy. It's the partner that will send them to therapy, And so, uh, and this happened to my brother, my brother's wife literally said, like, 
you need to go to therapy and figure this out because you're not connecting with me emotionally. And they Mm. often will have no idea because it really wasn't modeled how to really sit and be vulnerable and safe with emotions. The other thing that happens is in enmeshed families where you have to be the same in order for the family to function, avoidant is often uh, the attachment style that everyone has. Because like you said, you said that whenever there's um, emotions that show up, there'll be a withdrawal. And so in enmeshed families where everyone has to be the same, the only way that that works is that everyone pretends to be a happy family fitting in this box. And then whenever, you know, difficult things come up, uh, everyone just kind of withdraws because they can't handle that kind of um, emotion in an enmeshed family. And that was explored um, a lot through one of my favorite podcasts, which is Hidden, which went into Chad and Lori Daybell and that whole murder thing. And she comes from a very enmeshed family. And it talked about how everyone kind of has an avoidant attachment style, which you would expect from an enmeshed family where everyone has to look apart and everyone has to fit a box in order for the family to function, which means that you can't um, ever really sit with intense feelings. Everyone has to withdraw from those feelings in order for it to work. And then the last thing that it made me think of was like the royal family. I heard this weird theory. I don't know if it's true, but it's a fun little tangent where, um, you know, often the queen mother or the queen who's, you know, raising children, um, you know, would, would, you know, withdraw from the child because she's the queen. She has responsibilities or whatnot. And you want the child to have a stiff upper lip and be strong. And what happens is these kids um, that grow up in the Royal family, they would always choose for sexual partners, women that were older and women that were also stronger. And there was a theory that I heard that said that, you know, people like Prince Charles or, King David, who abdicated his throne, they all chose partners of women who uh, were really strong personalities and also a little older. And the theory was because mom wasn't there, because there's definitely an avoidant attachment going on within the royal family where, you know, we just don't do emotions. We just got to we're the royal family. We got to get to work um, that these sons uh, we're so, you know, we're so desiring of a mother that they would choose partners that kind of resemble the mother son relationship. Um, which is why you have these really dysfunctional Mm. Kings and sons in past history, because they had mothers that either were the queen or the queen mother and they weren't present and they weren't bonded. And so you get these really messed up sons with really messed up sexual lives, which was an interesting theory. Anyway, that's, those yeah, are my it, thoughts on that. No, no, no. Good stuff. And I'll tell you, we'll get to secure here in a moment because we've got one more of kind of the unhealthy ones to talk about. And then we'll wrap up talking about secure and then just share kind of some thoughts about all of this. But I, it, it became obvious to me that my parenting style was an avoidant parent. And yet I really do, when I look at what the secure attachment style was, I I was given a secure attachment style. My parents, I think, did a great job. They were emotionally available. I think the things that needed to go right for me to have um, to move into secure attachment happened, but something went wrong um, because 
I didn't parent from a secure attachment style. And in some ways, you know, again, the way this all lays out this material messed my kids up. And uh, it was kind of hard to go over this stuff this morning and try to figure out like what went wrong because I was emotionally unavailable. I was strict. Um, I, I expected a lot and feelings. I always stepped away from any, I always tried to be logic based in terms of helping my kids make choices. And I really didn't take into account emotion. That was always something that got off track if, if I took that into account. So I stayed away from that. And um, it, it was interesting, again, as we get into this, to see how you have a chance, each generation has a chance to fix what their parents uh, did wrong. And I'm I'm a living testimony that sometimes we end up getting wrong what our parents got right. Like we're now we're now the first generation of sending out a new problem into the world in terms of how we parent. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I want to, I want you to go into your, the thoughts of, you know, political notions that support this attachment style. That was an interesting thought. What do you mean? I don't know. You you had a note. What do you mean? Or maybe it was my note. I don't know, but there's, um, there's kind of political ideas of, uh, you know, be independent, pick yourself up from your oh, conservatives, be oh, self-reliant, yeah. right? And so yeah. if you have politics and religion that are supporting that you are just responsible for yourself, don't lean on anyone else, be self-reliant. Yes, Britt, to what you're speaking of, um, conservative politics are certainly going to have us um, – be weary uh, of helping others out and and having lots of social programs and trying to, you know, realize that maybe somebody who has a, a mental um, dysfunction or they're homeless. Um, you're looks like you're back. Um, I, I think what you're saying ends up being very true that uh, the religion I came from was. Uh, a very conservative religion and my politics were very conservative. And so I think I was instructed by those two systems to be avoidant. Um, but my parents weren't. And so maybe that did play a part. And, and I think it's interesting too, because the way you said that you're intimating that we have attachment to our primary caregivers, our parents, but sometimes systems sort of play out as a caregiver for us too. And in those systems, we can run the risk um, of picking up these traits from them, from the systems themselves, because we place so much trust in them almost as if they're a person. Yeah. I also think like America has a lot of this idea of like be self-reliant and then you know, we have these older generation of people and in other countries, you know, grandma and grandpa lives at the house with everyone, right? And they they babysit and they help and they are being helped. And then we have, you know, this kind of generation of, I don't want to ask anyone for help. I'll go into a nursing home and just down. And it's like, yeah. you know, maybe that idea has limitations, right? Right, right. The, uh, the third one here, they label disorganized. Um, I've also seen it as anxious avoidant, also seen it as fearful avoidant. Um, this third one, it says a consequence of childhood trauma or abuse. 
Perceived fear is the central aspect of its development. The source of safety becomes the source of fear. In other words, your parents should be a source of safety. But in kids who develop the disorganized attachment profile, um, they tend to see their parents where there should be safety are actually the root of their fear. There's the, the parents are either abusive or some other severe dysfunction that the child is scared um, to be in the presence of the people who should fill that child's needs. Caregivers show highly contrasting behavior, which is inconsistent and unpredictable. Um, the, the children usually have witnessed a traumatizing experience that involves attachment figure. Uh, the caregiver may abuse the child verbally, physically, sexually, or the child witnesses the caregiver abuse, abuse someone else. The child no longer trusts the caregiver. And then as adults, when these kids grow up, if they develop this disorganized or anxious avoidant uh, attachment profile, uh, they'll, they'll show up with a strong fear that the people who are closest to them will hurt them. They will fear intimacy, uh, avoid proximity, similar to individuals with an avoidant attachment style, though the main difference for disorganized adults is that they want the relationships. In other words, the avoidant person doesn't think they need these relationships. They're better off without them. They shouldn't emotionally connect to anybody because they would be risking too much. Whereas the disorganized uh, adult wants relationships, but everybody has let them down. And so they're scared to death of a relationship because it has so much risk. Um, they expect and are waiting for the rejection, disappointment, hurt to come. In their perception, it is inevitable. They do not reject emotional intimacy. They are simply afraid of it. Um, they have trouble believing that their partner will love and support them as they are. Uh, they, the disorganized adults tend to have a negative view of both themselves and others. And they have a higher risk of developing mental health issues such as substance abuse, delinquent and aggressive behavior, and uh, will tend to um, pass the abuse on to their own children. Uh, any thoughts from you on the disorganized? Yeah, this one makes me really sad. Like I can't imagine what it's like to be in a brain that operates like this. So in that baby scenario, the anxious attachment child learned to cry because if I cry, you know, hopefully the caregiver will come if I just keep crying, right? And then the avoidant figured out the crying somehow bothers my caregiver. So maybe if I don't cry and don't need them so much, then they'll stay, right? So it's at least a plan, right? You can figure out how a tiny little big baby brain would make a plan for that caregiver to stay with them. And when you get to the point where you're do where you're this disordered, where you're doing both, you you want you want the caregiver there, but you're afraid. So you give, you know, sometimes you're anxious and sometimes you're avoidant because your brain is just really disordered because it just doesn't know what to do for this bonding. And you brought up substance abuse. And I was listening to one podcast where they were doing, uh, trying to understand heroin addicts and, um, you know, the heroin addict, you know, you talk to them, you know, why do you do heroin? And one of the guys said, um, 
that he knows that it's wrong and he knows he shouldn't and he knows that it um, has destroyed all his relationships. But he said heroin felt like when you come home from school and your mom brings you some soup and cuddles you and you have, you know, just warm soup and just a hug from your mother. And that's what heroin felt like. And it's like this disordered adult who is a heroin addict um, the brain is seeking the thing that it never got when he was six months old and he may not have realized it, right? He may not even know that. Um, and you know, his relationships, maybe he was, um, clinging or abusive or avoidant, or, I mean, it's just all the, all the red flags because, because his brain just doesn't even know what to do in this relationship. And that just makes me really sad and, um, makes me want to, you know, be a better mom and be a better parent because when that isn't there, it really messes up our brains and these poor adults who um, are so disordered that the person that they were supposed to bond with is the person that they fear. And that just breaks my heart because that's going to do a lot of damage to a brain and it's going to take, you know, a lot of therapy to undo that. Yeah. In fact, I want to put up on the screen here, <clears throat> this, this, and, I think it helps to understand it this way. So on the left-hand side, you have secure and avoidant. These two uh, tend to have low anxiety. And the reason is because the avoidant realizes that the people in his life are the problem. Um, they understand that it's the caregivers who didn't show up. It's not me. It's why the avoidant person still has a high self-esteem. They still tend to be really good around people. Um, they tend to be very social. Uh, they have friends. They don't have a problem finding a relationship. They just don't have any depth there because they know that other people will let them down. So low anxiety on the left, the secure person feels good about themselves. We'll get to the secure attachment here in a moment. They feel good about themselves and they feel good about the people that they're in relationships with. So they have a high self-esteem and they also have a high esteem of others. But on the right-hand side, you have the high anxiety. And so you have the people who um, their caregivers didn't show up. They were always letting them down. And so there's this fear that, you know, the world will fall apart. Things are going to go south. Relationships are going to end tragically. And then you have the fearful one on the bottom right, which is some form of abuse or trauma is taking place. <clears throat> and so the person in the bottom right, that fearful uh, avoidant or anxious avoidant, uh, really gets the worst of everything because what they end up with is the feeling that they're a problem and the feeling that everyone is going to let them down. And uh, I can't, as you pointed out, I can't imagine I've got, I've got a child out of my four children. I have a child who seems to have this attachment style and it, it makes her life extremely difficult. Um, very tough. And, and so I, I, kind of feel for all of these, but it, it's strange how like the avoidance still shows up relatively successful in their life. They just don't have any depth to their relationships. Um, but the anxious and the fearful avoidant, uh, anxious avoidant and fearful avoidant, uh, both tend to really struggle with finding happiness. Uh, whereas the fearful avoidant even struggles at times more often with mental illness um, because there's this deep trauma that's also present there as well. Um, anyway, I just thought that kind of uh, image up on the screen kind of helps people kind of put some of this together. Um, 
anything else before we go into the secure attachment? This one, yeah, this one just brings out a lot of compassion in me, right? It's really easy to kind of get angry at someone who um, is being delinquent and stealing and substance abuse problems and, you know, all the problems that would cause if that person is in your life. Um, but if they, as so often is the case uh, in those early years, became somehow fearful of the person they were supposed to bond with, um, it, it gives me room for a lot more compassion than I would if I just looked at an adult in what they're doing right now, right? Um, and it makes me, you know, yes, we sometimes need to remove people from the playground because they're going to hurt other people, but it, it makes me want to do it with a little bit more compassion and humanity um, because so often you know, hurt people, hurt people. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were once a little baby who was crying and nobody came and that, that makes me a lot more compassionate. Great point. And those are things that we ought to, ought to be considerate of. Um, and then this last one is the secure attachment. Here's what I've got. Self content, socially, um, social, uh, they're warm, they're easy to connect to, they are aware of and able to express their feelings. They also tend to build deep, meaningful, and long-lasting relationships. They tend to be well-liked in the workplace. And then these were the five conditions that caregivers needed to provide for a child to develop a secure attachment. Number one, the child feels safe. Number two, the child feels seen and known. Number three, the child feels comfort, soothing, and reassurance. Number four, the child feels valued. And number five, the child feels supported to explore. And then these are the 10 signs of secure attachment in adult relationships. Um, able to regulate emotions and feelings. They have goal-oriented behavior. They are successful at bonding opening up to and trusting others, um, knowing what uh, you're about in life, like what your goals are, the purpose that you have, you have some things you're kind of moving towards and you seem to be successful at that, uh, can communicate your needs effectively. You feel like you have an impact on the greater world around you. Um, you're comfortable with closeness and mutual dependency so not so the so the other people you're in relationships with it's in balance you are giving and receiving um to some sort of balanced way um actively seek emotional support from your partner and you also give emotional support to your partner you're comfortable being alone and you use that time to explore and you have a strong capacity to reflect on how you are being in a relationship um, and then it says these, they said like there were three things. If you saw these three things in somebody, you could pretty much guess that they had a secure attachment. And it was a positive view of, of themselves, a positive view of others, and a positive view of their childhood. And if somebody could tell you those three things were positive, then you could almost assuredly guess that they had a secure attachment style. Any thoughts from you on that? This one is so interesting because we have to bring up another form of privilege. There's multiple times on this podcast where we have to acknowledge our own privilege. And here's another one that people don't think about a lot, but we are both firstborn children. Mm 
And firstborn children are 30% more likely to be leaders. They're more emotionally stable. They're more outgoing. They're more persistent. They're more able to, um, you know, take bad advice and just kind of go with it. Um, firstborn children are more likely to go into jobs where you need some agreeableness, whereas later children are more likely to go into a work where they can work um, for themselves or by themselves. And so it's another form of privilege that we don't often think about is that your firstborn child is going to get much more love and attention. And when they cry, you're right there because they're, you know, they're your first then later children who may have to learn earlier to be more independent. And so you and I are both firstborns. And so it's another privilege that we have um, that really affects our ability to go out into the world. And it's, you know, it's privilege that, you know, we don't talk about a lot because it doesn't have a race and it doesn't have a gender, but it does make a huge difference for how you show up in the world because you've got so much more love and attention. Than um, let me make this a little bit bigger. So this is how people are within relationships when it comes to attachment theory. Again, we've talked about how as children, how your primary caregivers um, interacted with you within relationship is going to affect the style you take on, but then you carry these on through your life. We've named the characteristics of both the parenting styles that cause it, as well as the traits we find in these children when they grow up to be adults. Um, starting in the top left, uh, obviously secure attachment has some sort of balance. The door is open. Uh, there's communication happening. We talked about the, um, the second style, um, I was going to find it here, the anxious, which they're calling preoccupied. <clears throat> preoccupied tends to uh, uh, walk uh, away because they're just, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid it's going to go south. They're afraid it's going to go bad. Um, the avoidant or dismissive, uh, because they're self-reliant, they really don't get deep into a, a relationship. They tend to stay surface level. And they tend to see everyone else as the problem. So here they turn their back on the relationship um, because they're they're just not uh, really able to go that deep. And then you've got this fearful or, or anxious avoidant, and they will just self-sabotage. They will tend to create the dysfunction in the relationship because they're so scared it's going to go south that all they have is apprehension and fear and then that sort of feelings and emotions end up self-sabotaging the relationship. Uh, and so they end up kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. They tend to be unpredictable and isolated again, because they're scared that the sky is falling. Um, it reminds me just again, it reminds me yeah. of the rat addiction study that I think I've brought up before where, uh, you know, give, they put a rat in a cage by itself and they were like, oh, this rat will tap the, you know, cocaine button until they die. Um, wow, this substance is really addictive. And then later they did that study again and they said, yeah, but that rat is alone and rats are social creatures just like anyone else. And so what they did, they did the study again, but they made a rat zoo with like all the best cool fun things for rats to do lots of other rats to play with and have sex with and do all kinds of things all you know you could form rat bonds they would tap the cocaine button once in a while but they definitely wouldn't overdose on it and so it was part of this ted talk that showed that the 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 healing power for addiction 
uh, is actually connection. Connection is because that's often the thing that's driving the addiction. And so that, that makes me understand a lot more, you know, substance abuse because the brain is just seeking any way that it can get that feeling of, of secure attachment of, of bonding with other people. And that when you let rats be with other rats, they don't overdose on cocaine, even though they could, but they don't, which is interesting. Yeah. Carl Hart wrote the book drug use for grownups. And he makes that argument. He says, if, if we could raise children to be responsible, healthy adults, then almost all adults could handle recreational drug use in a healthy, responsible way where they use those things um, as tools. And he said like, yeah, there's a significant number of people who have uh, drug addictions, but that the people who do tend to have dysfunction when they were growing up and um, they have a sense of hopelessness and a, and a sense of seeking out um, feelings and um, connection that they can't get in their normal life. And that's what leads to the addiction. So I think it, I think it goes right in line with what you're saying. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you had mentioned Brit, uh, an image, I'm going to put it up on the screen and let me get rid of this. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I love this because uh, I just really think that people, we have a lot of talk about having good self-esteem and having grit and all these things. Um, but it's so interesting that that model in your brain is formed in that first year of life. So if it's positive and you're loved and you have a secure attachment, you have good self-esteem, but then if you're avoidant, it's because, you know, you have this internal model in your brain that says there's something about me that's unlovable. And so I'm going to withdraw. Right. And so anything that you do on the surface to try to, um, combat that, like you, you know, say a mantra in the morning that I am enough or something like that. It's not going to get to that root of why you feel unlovable, right? What's driving that behavior. And then for the, you know, the avoidant, uh, you'll have a working model in your brain. That's a lot, that's confused. You know, there's a lot of confusion. And so it's interesting that this isn't just how we view other people. It's also how we view ourselves. And so that's what's going on underneath the, you know, in the eighties, we had this thing of let's try to build self-esteem in kids, not realizing that that is really built into our brains in those first few years of life. And I think the other question we need to bring up is how does, because, you know, there's other podcasts that talk about attachment styles, especially therapists will talk about this. Um, but for our podcast and our purposes, I just kind of wanted to touch base with, the question of how does faith in God or how does religion help or hurt us in these attachment styles? And I think I thought about it this morning a lot. And I think it's kind of a mixed bag because sometimes you'll have statements like, you know, we are all God's children, or you'll have um, religious structures that give you a lot of stability in childhood, give you a family. But then there may be um, in those families, there may be some emotional avoidance that has to do with religion, or there's some us versus them, or there's some enmeshment, or you only get love if you do these things or show up in this way. And so I just kind of thought about it. And I think it's just, I think it's a mi mixed bag. I think there's some things in there that can be helpful for bonding, showing up at church, having a stay at home mom having that built into the religion somehow, having um, 
a stable childhood where you have adults that, uh, you know, teach you and respond to you and know your name and that kind of thing. Um, so there, there is some structure and structure can provide stability and stability can provide healthy bonds. But there's also some limitations because organized religions aren't known for really meeting emotional needs, right? Because everybody has to be the same. So there can't be that depth that you need with emotions. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? How does, how does, and especially for you, because you parented, you're parenting your child on that side of life and this side of life. Um, how did it hurt or help as you were parenting? Um, what strikes me as you were saying that I may go off in a different direction, which is that if, if your religion gives you a God who seems to not show up when you need them and they're inconsistent. So for instance, he helps you find the keys to your car, but he, but God doesn't show up when you really need real help then it's, you can see why perhaps from a religious stand, uh, from a religious point of view, that that kind of a God might add to uh, one of these three sort of dysfunctional uh, attachment styles. Um, in terms of me personally, my religion taught me to be a rule keeper and that keeping rules was how we measure whether somebody is a good human being or not. So my parenting style didn't leave a lot of room for mistakes. My parenting style wasn't very emotional. It was much more um, logical, direct, strict. There, um, I, I didn't beat my kids, uh, but there were a lot of groundings and a lot of uh, verbal discipline. Um, again, I wasn't emotionally available. And I think in lots of ways, my religious system contributed to that because it gave me a false idea of what success was and wasn't. Um, and I seem to do better at life as I stayed disconnected, as I stayed avoidant. And so I wasn't showing up for my kids the way they needed. And back to what I said in the beginning uh, of this part, I think the way your parents and your religious system frame God and what you can expect from the divine uh, also probably contributes to this in significant ways. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be personal myself here too. So I have one brother who was a heroin addict. Um is it is an addict and has some sobriety behind him, but um the relationship with his mom is something that has given him a lot of grief over the years. But the interesting thing and I've seen this in other places is if if you have, let's say even not just my brother, but let's say you have kind of a chaotic life and God and religion becomes your safe place, right? God, God loves you. God is there for you. You have a religion that shows up for you. You have people that send casseroles when you're sick. If that is a part of your, um, you know, if you, if you maybe convert later on to some kind of religion and that's a part of your safe place, deconstructing is going to be very scary. Deconstructing may even break open some things that were kept under wraps because God loves you and you're safe here in this religious building. And so I've seen addicts before, if they find God and church and that kind of structure, if that becomes their safe home base, which was what mom was supposed to be, um, it may be very difficult to deconstruct. 
It may be a threat to sobriety even to deconstruct. And so one of the reasons that my brother and I don't talk religion at all is because, um, you know, church really became his home base after, you know, struggling for many years. And I, in my kind of deconstruction, I always want to talk deconstruction because it's interesting to me, have to step back and see that may not be safe for him right now, right? That may be a threat to his sobriety because if God is mixed into your safe home base, it's going to be really difficult to deconstruct that uh, because you're going to have to deal with a lot of other stuff that's going to come up with that. It's going to be like losing a parent. Like you're going to have to grieve that pretty deeply. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of towards wrapping up, um, like the Enneagram, like other things we've talked about on here, I think this is a, a good way to really kind of know yourself, to know how important it is if you're a young parent, how important it is to show up in certain ways so that your kid can develop a, a healthy attachment style. Um, it helps me to understand other people. As you pointed out earlier, as we were talking about the, the third dysfunctional one and how serious it is and how much um, compassion to have on somebody who finds themselves in that attachment style, it helps me to grant a lot of sp space for people to make mistakes or to show up unhealthy because they really are a product of what was given to them. And, you know, as you and I have talked, there's a whole hell of a lot less free will, maybe none than what we thought. And so when people show up perpetuating these unhealthy um, outward ways of navigating the world and navigating relationships, I just become deeply aware that they've encountered things that I haven't. Uh, and I've got, again, I've got my own dysfunctions, but when I see some of these things, I'm like, man, that that's gotta be hard. That's gotta be rough to have been disappointed by your primary caregivers in such a way that these are the mechanisms you've developed to avoid being disappointed or to avoid more trauma or to avoid somebody letting you down. Um, and, I don't think any of this conversation should be used to judge anybody or beat someone up, but rather to just make more space for the humanity of it all and how messy life can be. Yeah. Even with the pain of my own mother, as I'm digging into this and realizing there were some gaps for um, emotional connection, when I look at her own family, you know, it was much worse. And so now instead of playing the blame game, I can see, everyone, including my mother and her mother as part of a system too. And that, you know, everybody really is probably trying to do the best they can. But if you, if this wasn't modeled, relationships are going to be very difficult. But let's yeah, bring up, do you so. have that one um, last chart and then thoughts? we can wrap up? Yeah. Can you bring up what that, is the, um, what's the, last the Maslow, chart? the Maslow? I just want to oh, bring yeah, that Oh yeah. Give in. me a second. I can do that. Yeah, let me. So uh, I just wanted to talk about, you know, why does, why does this work? Why does digging into this really improve your life? And I think it's because when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, love and belonging isn't the top, right? That's not the very pinnacle. Love and belonging is towards the bottom. And so sometimes we think for, for Maslow that, oh, we go up this like a stepladder and we never go back down. And it's like, no, as an adult, you're continually improving each one of these 
um, kind of platforms. And so when you go down and improve your love and belonging, because realize your attachment style, you realize the attachment style of your parents, you're able to dig into it and make some improvements, then that actually enables you to continue to go higher on this on this chart. So Bill and I are going to do a whole episode on this in the future because there's so much here. But you know, first you just you have your biological needs and just safety, just you're secure, you're stable, you have someone you have someone there. And then right after, you know, you're just alive, love and belonging is next. You've got to have some kind of bonding relationship. And then once you have that, you know, you can continue to go to self-esteem and cognitive things where you're understanding things, aesthetics and beauty, um, self-actualization. We used to think self-actualization was the top of the pinnacle. And we kind of recently uncovered Maslow's unpublished papers where there was actually one more on top of that, which was self-transcendence. But if you don't have a basic kind of bonding um, a positive bonding experience as a human, it's going to be very difficult for you to continue to grow because you'll be stuck at that level. And so it's not that um, we stay in one place as adults, we're continually um, going up and down this ladder, improving things so that we can continue to grow higher and higher into self-actualization and self-transcendence. And so, you know, if you go in and you improve your diet and you improve your health and you improve your relationships and your bonding and you, that will enable you to go kind of further in your personal development. So it's really important for, to dig into, even though we're not one years old anymore, because we can fix some of these, um, or at least be aware of some of these coping mechanisms and improve them so we can continue to grow into the later stages of human development. Yeah. And as you're saying, I mean, I can think in my own life times where I've, where I've been able to do things higher up the pyramid because I felt safe with all the things below. And um, I, I wondered as I, we went through and put this material together, especially once you shared this and I could really kind of see this, a hierarchy in front of me. It makes me wonder if we go back 200,000 years to a time where we lived on, uh, you know, just got out of the trees and we're, we're living kind of in the, the savanna or, or on the jungle floor and we're hunter gatherers and we're, we're kind of in those initial parts of being a human society or tribe. And it might've been really difficult for a child to get to these higher things. Uh, you and I were talking off the air that probably very few people in a in a society or a tribe ever got to the place where they were, you know, awoke um, because they they didn't have a chance to feel safe with just those bottom uh, three or four places on the hierarchy. And so you sense that like, hey, we live in an age now. Again, there's tons of uh, situations where people still don't have um a safe access to these bottom parts of the hierarchy. Um, but we live at a time now where at least in developed countries, maybe most people could uh, have a life where they end up in a secure attachment style. And yet, as the science says, only 66% of uh, humans in the United States get there. And so there's certainly a lot of room for improvement. And if we could improve, if we could get that number up to 80 or 85% of people who 
enter secure attachment style. What kind of effect would that have in the world at large? And I think it would be tremendous. And again, what it involves, as you were talking about the drug use part of it, what it really involves is helping people to develop second half of life skills in the beginning when they're 20 years old, so that when they get married and they go to have children, they understand what all of these things are. And we're nowhere near that. It would, it would take, as you and I pointed out umpteen times before, a complete revamping of the system and of the social structures and how we teach and how education is imparted to get there, but it would make a world of difference if we can improve that number 5% or 10%, uh, because the amount of dysfunction that would be perpetuated generation after generation would be tremendously uh, diminished. I'm going to say one more thing that it's a little bit out in the weeds. It may be even controversial, but um, when you're thinking about feminism and patriarchy, you can almost kind of see how patriarchy happens as a as a species because if if babies come into the world and especially for that first year they have to be taken care of night and day by a caregiver and so the mom usually because the mom is the one right there's no formula so the you know the mom is feeding the child to keep it alive that uh, that needs to be protected and supported by something, right? And so women are going to be really dependent on the men who provide the safety in order for the woman to be able to create that bonding, that safe bonding between mother and child. And so the interesting thing about feminism sometimes is that we want to say women can do anything and, um, you know, let's kill the patriarchy and fuck the patriarchy. And I'm, I'm on board with all of those things, but we also have to remember that uh, if you do decide to bring a child into the world, that bonding with caregivers and especially um, usually with mother is still very sacred and really affects the world and really affects that child. And so Jordan Peter said something the other day. He said, you know, every society has kind of a sacred icon for mother and child and the sacredness of mother and child because it's the basis of humanity. It's the basis of, of everything that we do as humans and it has to be protected. And so, you know, how do we fuck the patriarchy, but also say, Hey, those first few years of children, man, those are really important. And we need to have a lot in place so that women are be able to um, provide those, those bonding opportunities for, for children or else it really messes with our brains. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, any other thoughts here before we close out uh, the episode? No, we that's it for it. me. We, we made it, but, glitches, I'm, but yeah, I, I apologize. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do some research to see how I can get my internet going for last time, but really, really interesting yeah, stuff. Fun. And we'll continue our conversations on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Cause all we're all about just human development on almost awakened wherever it comes from. Um, even though we're not therapists, we're, we're just trying to be better humans. And the, I think um, our attachment and bonding styles is part of it. Yeah. And, and as you're saying right now, the reason I thought it was important to cover this topic, uh, at least in part, was because when people have their lower needs taken care of and they are in a secure attachment style, 
they will feel safer to explore the world and be curious about it and to learn new tools and hence move further, further into stages of human development. Um, and uh, again, the name of the podcast, right? Almost awakened, uh, become a little more awakened. And if people are constantly fighting for love, fighting for their basic needs, fighting for, uh, to not feel scared that the relationships that are most important to them are going to fall apart, to feel like people will show up if they are uh, transparent, authentic, and and vulnerable. Um, there's just a lot more room for growth and, and success on this side of things. And so we want people to have the tools. I wish somebody had shown me this stuff when I was 19 and really sat down and helped me understand it because I might've shown up in such a way that more of my kids would have gained a secure attachment style. Um, and then they would be better off. Um, and, and I don't want to see these negative traits perpetuated generation after generation. And today's topic shows me clearly how we humans perpetuate um, uh, unhealthy outlooks and unhealthy behaviors to the next generation. Yeah, all four of us kids in my sibling group, you know, struggled in various ways by having a mother who was emotionally detached. And so, yeah, we have to do the work to try to not pass that on because avoidant passes on avoidant. Um, and we'll, that. yeah, avoidant passes on avoidant. And so we're all four of us are trying to not, not pass that on. And so one of the most important things of my day is uh, I have a daughter who's just really emotional about a lot of things. And we're talking about just first grade, right? And so I have to make sure I take a few breaths before she gets in the car when I pick her up from the bus station because I know she's going to have to emotionally unload her day. And I have to be able to be present enough to sit with that and work with that and be safe for that. Um, and I really try to be able to do that. But I only know that because it's something that I'm trying to do that my mom didn't do. And it's hard because it wasn't modeled for me. And so I have to actually, you know, some some people can probably just do it, like listen to their daughter, you know, talk about Jimmy pushed Sally at school and be fine. But I struggle with it because um, I was raised with an avoidant attachment style. And so I have to like purposefully, intentionally prepare myself for when she gets off the bus. And I know she has to emotionally unload so that I try not to pass that on. Um, because we're all connected to each other, right? And we're just understanding where you are in the system of what raised you so that you can continue to parent yourself so you can be a better parent. And hopefully each generation gets a little bit better, but having words for it is a huge part of trying to figure this out. And lastly, you just said it too, which is you can, you can show up to a moment and have... Um, the inner workings that push you to lean towards one of these three dysfunctional styles. Um, you mentioned you have some of that. I've told you I have some of that. But being present and aware allows you to come to a moment being your higher self, your best version of yourself, who can hold a conversation with your child after picking them up at the bus stop, um, who can sit with uh, my kids now as adults or my grandchildren um, and, and give them the presence that would allow them to develop a secure attachment style. Um, because again, this side of life is about what you do with each moment. So again, I thank you for all that you've added today, Britt, because I, I, I do think this is an important topic 
and it's interesting, but yeah, it's important that we give people the tools to help make a better um, collective society. Yeah, so. I think we made it full circle. We started today with congrats on becoming a grandpa. And uh, because of kind of understanding this kind of thing, I think you're going to show up as a totally different grandpa to those newborns than you would have mm. before, which is, yeah, you know, I, that's yeah. really exciting. Like, goody for them. <laughs> I'm a much different grandparent than I was a parent. Some of that I think happens naturally, but mm -hmm. I show up in ways as a grandpa that I, I wish I would have shown up as a parent. Yeah. yeah, I'm just really good to show like that newborn face is just so, so, so important. And I'm sure you see that differently now yeah, totally. with those little ones. So full circle, circle of life here. I don't have anything else. <laughs> cool. All right. Everybody have a great day, folks. If you like these conversations, please drop us a donation. We'd love, we'd love like a recurring $5 a month. Something doesn't have to be much, uh, but it gives us the ability to kind of plan ahead and know what's coming in. Uh, for everybody who does donate, thank you very much. For everybody who watches and enjoys the show, we're grateful to be having these kinds of conversations, and we hope they're helpful to you. Uh, Britt, have an excellent week, and uh, see you see you next Tuesday. You too, Grandpa. Bye. Okay, take it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.